This morning we're going we're gonna to ask the question from the text, what makes us distinct? Moses, Moses is going to answer this question and then hopefully we can uh, apply that to ourselves. Before we do that, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your kindness toward us. Thank you for music. Thank you for a world that makes, makes sense enough for music to make sense to us, Lord, for us to be moved by it, for, uh, for, for, for good, solid words that point us to good, solid truth, Lord. Uh, I, I, I feel really dependent on you this morning, Lord. I pray that we would all feel that uh, this morning, Lord, that we just need you, that we need to hear from you. We need you to move in our midst, Lord God, to, to cause us to just treasure you more deeply. So would you do that, Lord? Would you make it so? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, a little bit of quick background for this text. It doesn't, uh, it's not going to take uh, long. Uh, the Israelites, if you've gotten there in, in Exodus, you're going to notice the Israelites had just committed a very serious, heinous sin. You might be familiar with it if you've read through Exodus before. They, as a nation, they decide, while Moses is kind of tarrying up on the mountain with God, they decide that they're going to fashion this golden calf. And they even kind of build this altar before it. They, they worship uh, there in some weird ways. There's like some debauchery sort of breaks out, really strange, confusing uh, episode, and, uh, and just a, a real black mark on the history of the nation of Israel. But we're not going to focus on that this morning. This morning we're going to focus on this exchange between God and Moses that occurs afterwards. And so picking it up in Exodus 32, this is a long section of scripture, but it's excellent. So we're going to read it all, 32, 30 and following. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, go, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin Upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I'll send an angel before you. I'll drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but... I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his own tent door. Thus, 
The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please now show me your ways so that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I've found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I'll make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. This is the word of the Lord. So last summer, um, I was going for a walk on my favorite section of the, the State Park Trailway. I don't know if you're familiar with it. A lot of people don't even know that it's there. You know, years back, Obviously, there was a train track that ran through town. They went through this rails-to-trails thing, and so now those are all uh, trails that you can walk on for a nominal fee, of course. Well, this particular section of trail, my favorite section, uh, they'd stop maintaining it because like a mile down from the marker, um, there's a bridge that they said was, was out. Really, it was just kind of busted loose. It needed some work done to it. So, uh, so they'd stop maintaining this section, which meant they stopped mowing the edges, and so there's tall grass on either side of the trail. So um, throwing caution to the wind, I, I decided to uh, rough it anyways. And as, as I'm walking along, looking ahead, there's kind of this slight bend in the path, kind of bends, and then it kind of came back around there. And, and, and I'm, I'm sort of peeking through the, the tall grass, and I see an animal standing out on the trail, um, probably 30, 35 yards out in front of me. Um, that particular section of the trail, um, a lot of it runs sort of parallel with the highway there with 180. That particular section of the trail is very close, re- relatively close to, uh, to the highway. So there's a lot of noise. Every time a car passes by, there's, uh, there's a lot of noise. And, 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 and this animal that I saw, he was kind of perpendicular on the trail facing toward the road like he really needed to cross. And every time a car came by, he just sort of, you can see he was very nervous. He was really jumpy about it. So my eyesight's not great uh, at that distance, especially, and I'm looking through the tall grass, right? All the factors are against me. So so I stop, and I start trying to process, man, what kind of animal uh, could this be, right? Just sort of running it through the database of things I've seen in my brain, which is not much. It's wrong shape to be a a coyote. The tail's the wrong shape. It's not standing up right. It's it's odd looking. Uh, And and so I'm just, I'm going through several animals in my brain. What is this? Is it a goat? What what is that out there? This all probably took place in a matter of seconds, right? But, But looking back, it felt like a really long time. Finally, it dawned on me. I think that's a mountain lion. Now, to some of y'all, you're like, who cares? You just clap your hands and holler and it'll run away. But here's what you don't know. I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, fortunately, I was far enough away, and he was distracted enough by the traffic that he, he never even knew that I was there. 
and, um, and, and uh, again, never having come in contact with one, I had no idea what to do. So here's what I did. I backed up slowly and quietly until he was out of sight, and then I turned tail and ran as fast and as far as I could, which, as it turns out, was neither very fast nor very far. And at the end of it, I had to make a business decision. Do I keep running and die of exhaustion, or do I stop running and risk dying by being eaten? And I chose the latter. I said, I'll just die today. It'll be okay. Fortunately, he never knew that I was there. He was nowhere in sight, and I survived to tell the tale. The, the outdoorsy men are, are, are probably thinking, number one, what a dummy, because you ran, uh, which I didn't know you weren't supposed to. And number two, what a wimp. Uh, <laughs> what a wimp. <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. But, but I was unarmed, uneducated, and I was also unwilling to risk it on that day. And, and here's what happened afterwards. Again, you might be thinking, what a wimp. Some of you get me, though. Some of you get me, and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm going there with you. That encounter changed the way that I walked down that path afterwards, right? It, I, there was a sharp distinction now between my old self, uh, uh, between who I, who I was now and my, my old self, along with others who had not had an encounter like that on the trail. I was now something of a marked man. And from that point forward, for months, I walked with like this sense of fear in, in one sense, not just fear like I was afraid, but, but there was this healthy and right respect for the lion of the trail. Uh, and I walked with a preparedness, right? And so, so uh, you know, truthfully, I can say that after that encounter, it was like the, 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 the lion's presence just stuck with me, kind of wherever I went, wherever I walked uh, on the path. And, and so every footprint in the gravel, I'm analyzing. I'm like, how big is it? Are the claws in? Are the claws out? Like, which direction is it going, right? Every rustle in the bushes, I'm like, what's that? And, and I'm just getting ready to... I, whatever I was gonna, I don't know what I was gonna do. You know, I don't. I'm not, I wasn't packing heat or anything. But his presence, it, it really, it, it followed me and it haunted me for months after that. And and it was the knowledge of his presence that changed the way that I interacted with my surroundings, and and in fact caused me to be distinct from the other more casual trail walkers. So what does that have to do with? Moses and the question at hand. I want to start out by noticing a few things in the text that will help us to understand how Moses answered that question, what makes us distinct. And I want to see how it applies to us here and now. That's really the only thing that we're trying to accomplish this morning. Make observations from the text and, and then try to, uh, try to understand and apply it. So I'm going to give you this morning the five eights of this interaction, the five eights. I was trying to mix it up a little bit, you know? Five eights. So, so Moses negotiates, God reiterates, God articulates, Moses contemplates, and God accommodates. So the first thing, we, let's just dive right in. The first thing we see is Moses negotiates. He negotiates for his, his people. Negotiates is not the perfect word, but it ended in eight, so we ran with it. Moses, you'll, you'll notice in the text that Moses is willing to have God turn away from him for the sake of his people. He says, I will go up to the Lord. 
You might follow along in, in the text if you want. I'll go up to the Lord, he says. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. He's saying, perhaps I can find a way to cover this sin on your behalf so that you might be innocent in God's sight. And, and he goes up and he says to the Lord, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. That, that, that little phrase, if you will forgive their sin, from my Exodus commentary says, this usually means in the Old Testament that the punishment of death will be taken off the table. That seems to be what Moses is asking for. Don't wipe them out. Don't wipe them out. Although punishments of a lighter and disciplinary nature may well follow. But if Yahweh will not forgive, Moses offers either to die. It's a little ambiguous. He's offering either to die on behalf of the people or along with his people, even though he's completely innocent in the matter. He wasn't even there. He was up on the mountain, right? But we see something very interesting and, and compelling. Moses is not willing to lose his people, even to the point of dying on their behalf. But that's not the only thing that gives that statement teeth, right? When he says, please blot me out of the book that you've written, right? We'll come back to that in a minute to see what else it is that kind of gives that statement teeth. The second thing we see, so we see Moses negotiates, number one. Number two, we see God reiterates. God reiterates the promise that he had made. Uh, and, and that occurs in Genesis 12, right? So we're seeing God has an insistence. He, he insists on keeping a promise to an unfaithful people. Back in Genesis 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, go from your kindred. Maybe you're familiar with this. Uh, and, and go from your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. God made this promise. And then like 600 years later, he's intending to fill in particular that land portion of it through Moses and, and the people of Israel. God said, lead the people. He, he told Moses, go ahead, lead them to the place about which I've spoken to you. I swore it to Abraham. He's recounting how it unfolded. I, I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob saying, to your offspring, I will give it. I, I'll send an angel before you even. I'm going to drive out the, the, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, despite what had just occurred, this disgusting form of disobedience and this willingness to just quickly turn aside to worship any old thing. God still has no intention of breaking that promise that he had made to give them this land. He's even going to clear it out for them. That's a heck of a deal. Many of us would be eager to jump on that, given the price of land in Palapena County over the last couple of years. So what's Moses' problem? The Lord's going to give him this kingdom-sized portion of land, and, and not just any land, land flowing with milk and honey. That's another way of saying this is good land. He could easily go forth as the leader of the Israelites, start his own kingdom, and crush whoever got in his way. What an opportunity for him to just go out and make a name for himself. So what's the problem? God, the, the problem is that God tells him something specific about how He's now planning to fulfill that promise. And that leads us to the third thing that we can notice. God articulates his plan. He, he lets them in on his intentions going forward. He says, God will make good on his promise to give them the land, but he's not going with them. 
God tells him, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But here's the catch. I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. What does stiff-necked mean? If you've ever worked with livestock, you probably know. Probably experienced that on some level. Specific to this context, let's get the specifics. Uh, Again, from the commentary, this is a figure of speech, essentially meaning stubborn, that's based on a farm animal stiffening his neck, specifically to refuse the yoke. So a yoke is this thing you're going to put around their neck and it's going to be attached to a plow or a cart or something like that. And stiff-necked means they're, they're not allowing you to put the yoke on them. Refusing to bear the yoke. For the people of Israel, bearing the yoke would have meant living in obedience to the covenant that God had made with them. The promise that he made to bless them but there was obedience involved, right? So, so them stiffening their neck against the yoke, that was God, uh, excuse me, that was rejecting God's good desire for his people, his, his desire for them to be his people under his protection, submitting to his plan and subject to his power. So God says, I'm not going with you. I'm not going with you. There's a sense in which it seems like it's good for them that he plans to not go up because he said, if I go up with you, I'm going to consume you along the way. You, you can use your imagination as to what he means by consume, but for reference, it's kind of like him saying, if I go up among you, I will end you. The principle is that sin always has a catastrophic result. One way or another, either right now or down the road. And the concept of going forward separate from God, that was the most catastrophic uh, word that the people could hear because they had this big mission in front of them, right? Lay hold of the promised land. So Moses faces a decision. Perhaps there are those among us for whom it would be a no-brainer, no-brainer, would not require a, a, a second thought. Take the land. Choose power. Choose opportunity. This is, this is option one for Moses. Make a name for yourself, whether God's involved or not, or choose God, whatever the cost. Refuse to strike out on his own. Those are the options he has to, to weigh. But unlike many of us, Moses has no interest in going out and making a name for himself. The fourth thing that we notice is that Moses contemplates his position via what the Lord has already said to him. So what he does is he just leans into God's word, right? Which points him to God's grace and God's friendship. He he recounts the Lord's own words back to him. We might think that that's strange. We're like, doesn't the Lord know what he said? Yeah, he does. But you see this happening throughout scripture over and over again. And so that's what Moses does. He leans into the Lord's own words. Moses said to the Lord, so so, so let me try to, to understand, Lord. See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. 
Yet you said, I, I know you by name, and, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please now show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And, and, and Lord, consider, too, that this nation is your people. He's just going to the Lord saying, God, I'm your person, right? And, and, and these are your people, right? Remember we said earlier, Moses is not willing to lose his people even to the point of dying on their behalf, but that's not the only thing that gave that response teeth, right? Block me out of the book that you've written. We get in, in, in chapter 33, starting in verse 9, I'm going to skip around, we get a picture of Moses' relationship with God kind of via the tent of meeting. It says this, when, when Moses entered the tent the pillar of cloud would descend and stand. I love that it uses the word stand. It, it kind of humanizes it. The pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Verse 11, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses' willingness to die is not only noble because of his love for his people, but it's also notable because he's willing to experience that apparently at the expense of, of a pretty close relationship he now has with the living God. It, it looks like, it sounds like Moses was kind of like a friend of God. And in a very real sense, he's, he's willing for the Lord to turn away from him for the sake of his people. Finally, the fifth thing we notice is that God accommodates his person. The Lord relents. He says, my presence will go with you. I hear you, Moses. I hear you. My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And, and Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, even though God already said that it would, right? Moses does this all the time. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For, for how shall it be known that I've found favor in your sight, I and your people? You've shown us this grace, O Lord. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? I love the way the NIV says it in, in uh, verse 16, which I don't say very often. But in this case, I love the way the NIV says it. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? The implied answer is nothing. God's people are supposed to be different. I think Andrew said that just last week. It's like it's important for you to know. God's people are supposed to be Different. They're, they're supposed to be distinct. And that's because they've been marked by an experience of his presence. And this should lead to, to a similar refusal, similar to Moses, a, a refusal to take one step down the path apart from him. And so the catastrophic result of the sin that the people had committed, going forward separate from God, that was averted for them. Now let's try to apply it. In light of Moses' answer to that question, what is it that makes us distinct? Let, let me just break in and bluntly ask, what is it that makes us distinct? Indian Creek. We'll think about it as a church, and then we'll think about it as individuals. But, but how, how would you answer that question normally without any leading? What, what is it that makes Indian Creek Baptist Church 
distinct? How is this collective group of people different from other groups in the rest of the world? And, and I know a million good answers to that, but I want you to think about it. I want you to think about our motivation as we move forward. I, 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 my, my concern for every growing church is the same. As, as we continue to experience growth, we get this shiny new building, whatever else it may be, my concern is always that we will just barrel off into the future under the presumption that because the material portion of our existence seems to be in order, that must mean that the Lord is with us. But is that necessarily true? Is material success always a sure sign of God's presence among us? No, it certainly is not. Far be it from us to, to claim that it is. My, my concern is, is always that, that we would just go out. We're just looking to make a name for ourselves. Be the kings of our own little kingdom without approaching God like Moses to say, Lord, if you're not going there, neither are we. We'd rather die than go up without you. Are we a stiff-necked people? Do you think in that way? I, I'm not saying that we are. I'm asking you. Analyze yourself. Analyze the way that you relate to the church. Are we unwilling to submit to the yoke involved with the Lord's promises toward us as we push forward to try to, to, try to uh, commit ourselves further and further to the Great Commission, to, to reaching people in Mineral Wells and Texas and the U.S. and the world? Do, do you submit to the leadership that God has put over us here? Are you stiff-necked? You, are you willing to support the group even when you don't necessarily get your way? God, that has been a hard one for me to learn through the years. Are we a stiff-necked people? I don't think we are fully, but in some ways we probably are. Let's examine Let's examine ourselves. Okay, let's think about it for the individual believer. Just kind of press further in, into the concept a little bit. Um, something that we see here from this text that we can apply to ourselves is that your life can look like you've been blessed by God and you're doing all the right things, but the reality is that you live, for, you live with no regard for the presence of God in your daily life and in your decisions big and small. Years back, I saw a church sign that meant well. I believe, it was, I believe it, was, it was put out there with the best of intentions, but it crawled all over me when I saw it. It said something like, life is a journey. Invite God to come along. I understand the sentiment. Again, I believe it was written with the best of intentions, and it's a cute statement. But I'm just not familiar with that particular version of God. God's not your grandma. He's not your recently divorced high school buddy who needs a friend. He's, he's not uh, the weird kid down the street that you feel sorry for, so you invite him to come along if he wants. You can tag along, God. We're going this way. would love for you to tag along. We're talking about the sin-conquering, Satan-defeating, sovereign Lord of the universe. He invites us to come along on his journey to restore all things unto himself, particularly us ourselves and other humans all around the world. Man, he's, 
He's making all things new and he's invited us. How on earth could we for one second think about walking the path without him? I, I think I know how we can do that and how we do. It's because we don't conceive of our life as being an integral part of his story. We think, man, this is my story and everybody else is just living in it. But that's not true, right? This is God's story and at great cost to himself. He is allowing us by grace to participate in it. This is not the Jamie Kinman show. This is not the Indian Creek show. This is God's show. He's the star and we get to play our teeny little part in it by his grace. And so just, again, just, just to lean into it a little bit more for the individual. One of the questions it raises, again, for the individual, is this. I didn't come up with this question, but it's a great one. Would you be satisfied in heaven? Let's just cut right to the chase. Right to the chase. Would you be satisfied in heaven if all the blessings of God were there? It was a total paradise, but Christ himself was absent. Would you be satisfied in that place? What about in this life? Would you be satisfied in this world if you lived the blessed life but Christ himself was absent. Because that's the reality of the way that we often try to live. If that sounds ideal to you, friend, you're in love with the gifts and not the giver. And you're in trouble. And I want to call you to come back. To come back and say, Lord, the, the gifts are nice, but, but it's you. It's you who my soul desires. So what, what, what's a man to do in a situation like this? We too, like, like Moses, we've been given this promised destination and, and we believe the world will ultimately be blessed through the spreading of the gospel and, and the spreading of the church. And like Moses, there are times when we're going to have to make a big decision. Do we take the land? Choose power? Choose opportunity? Make a name for ourselves whether God is involved or not? Or do we decide to choose God whatever the cost? And it might cost you everything. Do we refuse to strike out on our own? So maybe the elephant, I don't know if this is where your mind went, but, but maybe the elephant in, in, in the room of the text, of the application of the text for you is this. Does that mean that God might turn away from us like the Israelites because we messed up and chose our own way? What about for the non-Christian person? You might be thinking, man, I've made every decision with no regard to God's presence in my life, what does that mean for me? I've got good news. While there are a lot of similarities between us and the people of Israel, here's the most important difference. If you call upon the name of Christ to be saved, and it's real, I'm not talking about you, you do lip service to get off the hook. You're scared of going to hell, so you say, God, 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 please keep me from going to hell. That's what I'm talking about. You call upon the name of Christ to be saved, and it's real. Listen, God will never, never turn away from you. I didn't say it's ever going to be hard. It's going to get real hard. 
But I said that he's never going to turn away from you. But why? In Luke 22, right before he's betrayed and delivered over to be crucified, we see Jesus pray, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony. Even after the angel strengthens him, he's still in agony. Do you notice that? Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and the sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Why is he in such agony? What on earth is, is going on here? Well, he knew the reality of the plan that was in place. He knew what was about to unfold. Then in Matthew 27, as Jesus is dying on the cross, verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He's quoting Psalm 22. He says, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reality is that Moses was modeling to us the gospel beforehand. He, he was willing to have even his limited fellowship with God cut off for the sake of his people. But God said, no, no, there is another way. But to his own son, praying in the garden, Father, if there is any other way, God's silence says, Son, you know there is no other way. And at the cross, Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten Son of God, grasp this, who was God and was with God in the beginning, who, who has known nothing but the perfect love and the unbroken fellowship with God the Father from eternity past up to this point. He's crying out for the first time ever, ever and he's not hearing anything back. Here's what you need to know, Christian. Christ bore your sin in his body on the tree and he experienced separation from the loving fellowship of God that afternoon. And at the same time, the full presence of God in that God was pouring out his wrath on his son. The wrath that you deserve for your sin. He didn't deserve it. That dark afternoon, you see, God turned away from his son on your behalf so that those who have uh, now been united with him by grace through faith will never have to experience one millisecond of the rest of eternity apart from his presence. You are now a marked man. Walk in it. Forever changed by this encounter that, that you've experienced with the Lion of Judah. Indian Creek, is it not in his going with us that we are distinct from every other people on the face of the earth? Is that not what makes us distinct? And if we are distinct because he is with us, man, how could we ever be content with living like we're just ordinary casual trail walkers, right? Never having experienced his presence. I want to exhort you this morning, lay hold of Christ as your treasure and your heart will be too full to fill up with lesser things. He's worth it and you're never going to regret it. Before we end with Psalm 22, I want to give you a little diagnostic tool. I didn't put this in my notes, but I'm a little ahead of schedule. So... Um, here are four questions that, that, that you can ask as you're trying to make a decision. Uh, some, someone taught the youth the other night, and they had a great flow chart. It was huge. Took up a whole board to write it out, and, and I can get that to you if you're interested. But, but let me just give you four quick questions. Number one, is it possible for me to glorify God in this? Whatever, whatever the thing is, is it possible? If the answer is yes, 
Go to the next question. If the answer is no, just, just, it's a no. Don't do it. It's a no from me, dog. Just don't do it. Okay? Is it possible? Number two, is it likely for me to glorify God in this thing? And if it is likely, give me three reasons how. Three reasons that you're going to use this thing, that you're going to glorify God as you pursue this thing. Question number three. <clears throat> will this thing, whatever it is, will this serve the good of others? Will this serve the good of others? And then if you can get through all of those questions, you come to number four, and this is the kicker. Is this actually about my own glory? And if it is, then you got two decisions, or you got two options. Number one, repent. Repent and say, God, I've made this good thing, whatever, this, whatever it is, I've made this good thing about me trying to make much of myself. Lord, please deliver me from this body of death. Help me, help me to trust you. Help me to seek to glorify you in everything that I say and do. That's option number one. Option number two is you just kill it right there. You just kill it. You say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not taking one step that direction if you're not going there with me. Okay, let me finish with this. Remember that Jesus quoted <clears throat> Psalm 22 on the cross. I believe the rest of the psalm, and Serena read this whole thing for us earlier, I believe the rest of the psalm tells us the rest of the story, the coming result of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. I'm going to pick it up in verse 26, and Jonathan's going to put it on the board for you to read along if you like. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him uh, shall bow down all who go down to the dust, ev uh, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to his people yet unborn. That he has done it. Through Christ, see, God was out to fulfill promises that he had made generations before and he intended to keep them centuries later. Namely, that his presence would go with us to the end of the age as we walk through this life, right? Seeking to accomplish the mission that he has given to us on our way to the promised land where we will eventually dwell with him forever. So, so, so guys, have, have, have you contented yourself with just being another sort of casual trail walker? You might call it a nominal Christian, Christian by name only. Or have you been marked by an encounter with the Holy One? Will you, will you choose to move about mindful of his presence wherever it is that you walk along this path or not? Or are you walking with preparedness, equipped for whatever it is that's going to come your way? But the most significant difference for us is that the Lion of Judah is not like the Lion of the Trailway in that... His presence does not haunt us, but it empowers us. And make no mistake, this lion, the lion of Judah, he's not safe either, but man, he is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for your word. Thank you for uh, giving us a morning where we can come, uh, come together into your presence to, to experience and worship you, Lord God. We love you. We need you. Would, you. would you move in our midst? Would you help those who are struggling with decisions? Man, is, it, is, is this the way or is this the way, Lord? Would you, would you help them to, to know which way 
to go, Lord, uh, via the diagnostic tool, right? Will this, will this glorify God or is this about my glory? Is this about me or is this about him? Lord, would, would you help, especially the young people in the room who are struggling with, with, with what to do next? What, what do we do in this next season of life, Lord God? Would you help would you help? Would you make us a church that's marked by that experience of your presence, Lord, and a refusal to move forward uh, for the sake of our own kingdom, Lord, and, and instead of yours, God? Mark us. Mark us by your spirit, Lord, and empower us to obey, Lord. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to enter into a time of response like we normally do. Uh, the, the band's going to play a song, and and uh, the elders can, uh, can come forward. They'll come forward to the front so that if you need to pray uh, uh, with someone, they'll be there. I'll be up in the front too. I'd love to pray uh, with you. And, and, and just think about if, if you've chosen a path uh, with your life, with, with kind of no regard for the presence of God, here's what you need to do this morning. Repent. Today. Don't put it off. Do it today. Lay, lay hold of, of the Savior. Submit to the yoke, right? His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Maybe you're trying to make a decision and you're just not sure. Man, is this right? Man, ask for prayer from the elders or from someone around you that you trust. Man, they would love, they would love to, to walk with you through it. Maybe you're just exhausted. Uh, because you have been sort of trying to strike out on your own, trying to make a name for yourself. Maybe you, you've, you've not known the Lord up to this point, and then today you're like, oh man, I didn't even realize what was going on. Uh, man, we would love to, to, to pray for you, to come back under the, 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 the presence, the safety of the, the presence and power of the Holy One. Let Him be your treasure. Let Him be your prize. So if you would, please, uh, please come as the band plays.